Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 18th, 2021. This time, almost exactly a year ago, uh, early June 2020, had my old friend Barton Gelman on the show to talk about Edward Snowden uh, and the current issues of individual privacy. Um, uh, Gelman had a, a new book out, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Uh, the book now uh, is out uh, in paperback. So I thought I would have Bart back on the show uh, to talk about the last year in terms of surveillance, uh, Snowden and many other things. He's one of America's leading journalists. Uh, many of you will be familiar with his work from the Washington Post. The, uh, the Atlantic, his books, he won the uh, Pulitzer Prize, he's done practically everything. Uh, and he's been on my show twice, which is, uh, I wouldn't say it's a world record, but it's quite an achievement. Uh, Bart, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So many times. So, uh, twice, at least. Well, I'm going to have you three or four times by the time this show dies, Bart. Um, well, not much has happened this year, has it? Um, <laughs> uh, not a very good joke, I'm afraid, and of course, not very funny in the context of COVID. I'm curious as your take on the impact of COVID on surveillance and the digital revolution. Some headlines uh, from the last few days. Uh, the UK is launching a digital vaccine. The New York Times is telling us that the vaccine passport is, quote unquote, coming soon. Um, how does COVID change everything when it comes to the big issue of digital surveillance that you've spent the last few years writing about? Well, it's interesting because uh, COVID gives uh, a good reason uh, for uh, your employer or uh, Yankee Stadium or the government to track whether you've been vaccinated, to track whether you've tested positive recently. Uh, and uh, some feared that it would be an excuse uh, for a kind of one-way ratchet of additional surveillance that would put your uh, location, your movements, and uh, your personal health information in the hands of others uh, at, at, in a kind of permanent way that uh, would not be taken back after the pandemic uh, played out its course. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot to worry about personally. Uh, the design of the uh, pandemic tracking apps has generally been fairly privacy protecting. Uh, there are uh, apps that are based on APIs put out by Apple and Google that will uh, track your proximity to other people who may have a positive, uh, a positive diagnosis of COVID and alert you when you, uh, when you're telephones have been uh, within a certain distance for uh, at least 10 or 15 minutes time to tell you you've possibly been exposed, but it doesn't tell you who exposed you. It doesn't keep track of individual names. They're using uh, frequently changing hash identities that uh, protect privacy. Uh, New York State, uh, where I live, has a, uh, an, a, an app that lets you generate a QR code 
and someone authorized to read it who you voluntarily choose to show the QR code will be able to uh, uh, get a link back to a state-run database that says whether you've been vaccinated uh, or whether you've recently tested positive for COVID. Uh, none of those things worry me, and they're all uh, run voluntarily. So the dark suspicions that some had about COVID as a surveillance nightmare have not come true in my judgment. What about the politics of all this? Is there any coincidence that a lot of the paranoia about COVID vaccines are coming from the right, both in the United States and in Europe? Um, why is there a political division? Is it because the, the right is paranoid simply about the state? Well, God, I, how to account for it? it, it it's similar to and uh, overlaps considerably with sympathy uh, uh, toward the QAnon nonsense. Uh, there are people who have boogeymen in their heads uh, who, who uh, purport to believe that Bill Gates has somehow put nano tracking technology that doesn't exist into the vaccines and that you shouldn't get the vaccine because you'll be uh, <laughs> affected somehow by it or tracked by it. I mean, some kind of uh, fabricated fantasy. Uh, why this is happening to the right, it's the same reason as, as, uh, as the sympathies toward QAnon. You just have a closed uh, media and social media ecosystem that is appealing to everyone's uh, worst fears and desires to explain the world in conspiratorial terms. But there's no truth in any of it. Well, thank you for clearing that one up. You say um, in the book, which I said has just come out in paperback, that the origins of your book predates uh, Snowden himself. In 2011, you shared a stage with the then, I think, CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. And I think actually it's possible that you and I were speaking on the same stage then. We certainly shared some stages. Uh, so what drove originally, it seems, your, your book uh, and your analysis of Snowden was a fear of big tech. Over the last year, of course, big tech has got even bigger. I wrote a piece against technocracy the year 2020, the COVID year, uh, that software finally ate the world. The headlines are ubiquitous. Uh, big tech surging growth stuns Wall Street. The FT tells us Amazon's hiring 75,000 new workers. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. More and more people are buying iPhones. And of course, the share prices are soaring in the pandemic. How has that changed your sense of the, the Snowden narrative and your fear of the surveillance state? The fact that big tech now is even bigger and that we have, it seems as if the final victory of big tech and digital over the analog world, does that make your book more urgent and the Snowden issues more paramount? Well, I think it does. The, the thing about big tech is that everything it can do uh, the government can do by tapping into big tech stores of data and analytics, uh, whether by uh, secret legal process or by simply uh, reaching in and stealing it. Uh, as uh, my book demonstrates that the government sometimes does. It simply piggybacks on surveillance by the big companies and takes it for itself. So any capability that is 
developed by one company or another company. I mean, no one company has all of these capabilities at once, uh, but the government can tap into any and all of them. You say in the book, um, you come right up front that uh, you think that Snowden did, and I'm quoting you here, did substantially more good than harm, although you acknowledge that he, he may have done some harm. Has your thinking about Snowden changed over the last year? Are you pretty much still uh, committed to the idea that he generally did a pretty good job and uh, apart from one or two problematic areas? I, I think he raised a debate that had to be undertaken. Uh, what are the boundaries of legitimate surveillance uh, of a government against its own citizens? Uh, and how 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 is secret intelligence restricted? Uh, what kind of oversight is is placed over it? Uh, at the time that Snowden made these leaks, uh, huge swaths of the of of this uh, set of programs were unknown even to exist amongst the general public and even among experts uh, in the intelligence world who were outside the system. They had no idea that some of these programs were operating. Now, intelligence has to have some secrets, but the existence of powers, government's claim of power to spy on its own citizens, that can't be done in secret. And since Snowden, um, there have been substantial public debates. There have been major court cases. Uh, that relied on his disclosures, there have been their legislation. Uh, the U.S. government now makes public on its own initiative far more than it did before because it's become convinced uh, that it was too secretive. Uh, and just to take one example of what's happened in private industry, I mean, Snowden created a market for privacy that hadn't existed before. Uh, it's easy to forget that when you go around the web today, uh, nearly every site you reach um, gives you an encrypted link. It's uh, a little padlock in your browser bar. It, uh, the address starts with HTTPS, the S standing for secure. Uh, and so your connection to the server that you're, that you're reading from or talking to is encrypted. That was not the case for the vast majority of websites in 2013 when Snowden first began to make his disclosures. And it's because of the world reaction and the desire for greater privacy and security that the web today is encrypted. I know this is a bit of a dumb question, but, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what happens if we hadn't had Snowden and Donald Trump had come to power? I don't think that the success, the political success of Trump and the, the Snowden phenomenon are, are really connected. Do you think that the Trump presidency would have been any different? And indeed, uh, over the last few months, you've joined the Atlantic and you've been writing a lot about the, uh, the, 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 put, the putsch in, in, in January 6th and, and, and the, 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 the end, quote unquote, of the, the Trump presidency and the denial, of, um, the denial of the legitimacy of the election. How has, uh, maybe putting my question slightly slimper, how has... Um, how has Snowden strengthened American democracy? Well, that's interesting. Snowden strengthened American democracy uh, by, by limiting the power of government and by increasing transparency about what government was doing. The reason I call my book Dark Mirror uh, is an analogy to uh, one of those police interrogation rooms where uh, 
the watchers can see you through the one-way mirror, uh, but you can't see them. So the American government was watching us, and we couldn't see that they were doing so. Snowden uh, made that mirror more transparent uh, and gave us the ability to make our voices heard about whether we wanted that sort of thing or not. Uh, it's very interesting. Trump's relationship with surveillance uh, is one in which he accused his predecessor of spying on him. Uh, this was always nonsense, uh, never demonstrated at all. Uh, but Trump's MO uh, has often been that if he accuses someone of some wrongdoing, it's because he's done it himself or is thinking of doing it. I always wondered whether he would abuse the powers of the surveillance state uh, and never saw much evidence that he had done so. It's interesting that you bring that up. Um, you, uh, you, you say in the book, at the end of the book, that, um, that Snowden's happy in Moscow, quote, I don't want to say happy, but he's satisfied there. He's not planning to go anywhere. Uh, neither of us, you quote the last sentence of the book, Snowden told you, have a driving need to see any kind of resolution. It's perhaps coincidental or perhaps not coincidental that Snowden and Trump both have interestingly ambivalent relations with the Russians. What would you make of that? Uh, I think they're entirely different. Uh, the Russians uh, saw Trump's uh, ascension to power as advantageous to Russia. Uh, the Russians did everything they could to see to his election. Uh, including uh, you know, extensive social media campaigns under uh, covert uh, cover. Uh, they gave shelter to Snowden because it was embarrassing to the United States, and Putin enjoyed the tweet. Isn't that uh, the same thing, that they're both, they're, in both cases they're pursuing their own interests? Sure, in both cases they're pursuing their own interests. Uh, Trump was willing to compromise himself uh, and, and government policy in order to win the favor of Putin. Uh, Snowden has not done that. Uh, Snowden lives there, uh, but he has uh, regularly criticized Putin uh, for his infringement of civil liberties. Uh, he has never praised Putin. He has never praised Russia as a democratic haven. Uh, he has not sung for his supper uh, while living there. Well, he doesn't need to sing for his supper. His supper comes anyway. I mean, you had this interesting section in the book when you, you say, the first time I traveled to see him in Moscow, I tried to get him on record about his relationship. And I'm quoting you here with the Russian government. You were living here, I said. Do you accept money from the state? Are you questioned about your time in U.S. intelligence? Snowden accused me of parroting his critics. He spoke in theoretical terms about what a person in his position might do. You know, I have no relationship with the Russian government, he burst out finally. You shouldn't engage in this kind of questioning. I get the sense, Bart, and I'm not putting words into your mouth, that you're a little skeptical of this. He couldn't live in Moscow unless he had clear, if not overt, certainly approval from the Russian government. It's not a free society, and clearly he's doing them uh, a service of some sort or other. The question was whether the service he was doing included giving them information about U.S. intelligence. Uh, and uh, there is lots of speculation about that, but no evidence of it. And I have come to believe that it's not happening, uh, that Putin uh, got all he needed from Snowden, 
by portraying his country as the refuge uh, against persecution of a political dissident, uh, that Snowden had unearthed wrongdoing by the US government, uh, the US government was trying to take retribution upon him, and that Russia would be the libertarian haven, haven uh, for uh, someone who should have been treated as a hero. Putin enjoyed playing that role. Uh, and uh, he gets plenty out of Snowden by doing that. It, it, he also uh, actually preserves uh, a somewhat more devious uh, interest, I would say, uh, which is that, that uh, people in the intelligence business tell me that Putin didn't want to return Snowden to the U.S. because if he had done so, uh, it might discourage uh, other potential uh, spies on behalf of Russia from coming to, to Russia, that, that he didn't want people who might want to defect to believe he could return them. Snowden didn't defect, but he worried about a spillover effect. Well, it depends what you mean by defect. Um, well, what I mean is transfer, transfer his allegiance to a foreign uh, foreign power. That's what he did not do. I guess so. So he, so he wasn't uh, a British spy. Um, Obviously, in the last year, the Putin dictatorship has deepened in some ways. The, the, the recent news has been about Navalny and the prosecution of him as an extremist, his hunger strike and near death, apparently. Has, um, has Snowden, after, over the last year, I've been looking at his tweets. I'm sure there are some. Has he made any overt remarks about Navalny? I don't recall that he has. Uh, that would be interesting. I mean, thanks to the work of Bellingcat, uh, uh, we know beyond any shadow of a doubt uh, that Russia uh, did poison Navalny and try to kill him uh, and clearly is persecuting him now. And uh, there's a lot to criticize there. I mean, Snowden hasn't made himself out to be a freelance commentator on everything. He talks about surveillance issues primarily. Well, he talks uh, about, I mean, he, he, he may not criticize, um, he may not criticize Putin's poisoning of Navalny and all the rest of it, but he's been quite critical of the, the Biden administration. Uh, there's a recent story, I think earlier this week that he slams, uh, uh, Kamala Harris and, and Blinken, the uh, the foreign policy uh, authority in the uh, in the Biden administration, for celebrating World Press Freedom Day because of the uh, I guess the hypocrisy of it in in terms of their persecution of um, of Assange. Um, is this uh, a little hypocritical if he's not overtly criticizing also Putin and Navalny? Well, the, the two have got nothing to do with each other. He has he has criticized Putin uh, overtly on issues of press freedom uh, and freedom of expression in Russia. That's his issue. His issue is surveillance and uh, whistleblowing and freedom of expression. That's what he talks about. Uh, and he has criticized Russia for that. Uh, he's very much involved in the Assange debate. He is unreservedly a supporter of Julian Assange. Do you and think Assange is... And, and, and I know this is another complicated question. You haven't written a book on Assange. You have on, on, on Snowden. Does Assange exist in a different category from Snowden? Or do you think most of the issues surrounding Snowden apply also to Assange? Oh, I think they're very different. Uh, and 
I have quite ambivalent feelings about Assange. Uh, to the extent that he is charged with obtaining information and publishing it, that alarms me considerably. Uh, where the U.S. government charges his, charges him under the Espionage Act, and the predicate is that he asked for information and published it, uh, and that that counts as espionage, uh, then I can't distinguish what Assange did there from what I do. Uh, and therefore, I think it is a, a, a very dangerous precedent for investigative reporting in the United States. Uh, the trouble with Assange is that there are all kinds of other elements of the case uh, that have to do with uh, uh, alleged conspiracy uh, to break into systems uh, that uh, that have to do with his secret relationship with uh, uh, Russian government security services and so on that make the case uh, much more ambiguous uh, and which offer uh, strong grounds to criticize Assange. Uh, but also the, the relationship between Assange and the Trump people is, is very dodgy, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, the... Now, that was uh, secretive and political and manipulative uh, and uh, not uh, journalistic, uh, but also not a crime. I mean, there are there are uh, corrupt secret relationships like that between uh, Trump and his supporters and One American News, for example, but it's not being charged as espionage. Uh, but uh, Snowden came out with an interesting tweet uh, actually earlier today. Um, uh, he's retweeting someone else, Matthew Green. He said, there has been a quiet but sharply accelerating push for turnkey tyranny by a coalition of governments. Um, he also gets cited quite often when it comes to China. Is there um, a turnkey tyranny by a coalition of governments? What, what exactly do you think he means by this? Is this... China, Russia, America? Uh, I hadn't seen that tweet, so I, I can't say what he means by it. I know what he means by turnkey tyranny. Uh, Snowden is saying, uh, when, he talked to, when he first talked about turnkey tyranny, that the U.S. government had built systems uh, that were capable of surveilling everyone all the time, uh, and that although there were policies uh, and procedures that forbade the grossest kind of abuse of those systems, all it would take would be a change of a few words in a policy or the deletion of a phrase uh, or uh, an alteration of several lines of code. And the system would go from one that made efforts to preserve civil liberties to one that made no efforts at all. Uh, and by the turning of a key, you would have an all-embracing surveillance system. Uh, that's what he means by turnkey tyranny. It was a, it was not only the activities of the U.S. government, but the potential of the systems it had built. Uh, here, uh, the news today is that Apple has collaborated with China mm. uh, in building a system in China that the Chinese government can surveil uh, without uh, any of the protections and procedures that Apple provides in other countries. Uh, and contrary to the intent of US law that forbids US technology companies from giving over private data uh, to the government of China, uh, Apple came out with a middleman that would uh, perhaps protect it from the reach of US law 
Uh, but for a company that puts so much emphasis on customer privacy uh, as Apple, uh, this New York Times investigation, which Matthew Green uh, contributed to uh, as an expert on encryption and security, uh, was quite disturbing. Yeah, and I missed that. I should have actually added that. And what makes all this even more chilling is that we're buying more and more iPhones, which are made all too often. There have been another series of reports on this uh, in, again, quote unquote, semi-slave manufacturing plants in China run by Apple. It's a subject perhaps, um, I know uh, you're thinking of doing another book, but that might be an interesting uh, book for you to do on Apple and surveillance. Uh, one of the favorite uh, bits of your book, in your preface, you say, at its core, this is a book about power. Information is the oxygen of control. Secrecy, secrecy and surveillance intertwine, define its flows. I wonder when you step back whether the, 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 the Snowden chapter in world history will have a broader meaning about the decline of American power and the re-architecting of, of global power. I'm thinking particularly uh, when it comes to cryptocurrency. Uh, I know that uh, someone just, um, uh, a, a, a non-fungible token, uh, Snowden's non-fungible token sells for more than, uh, I think a few days ago, more than five and a half million dollars. Is there a, a shift in the architecture of financial power in the world that Snowden and his case somehow symbolizes about this change in power? Well, as you're well aware, cryptocurrency preceded uh, Snowden and has momentum of its own as, a, uh, as an independent, non-sovereign uh, form of, uh, of currency uh, that, that's not subject uh, to the control of any state or indeed any entity, uh, that it's entirely decentralized. Like Edward Snowden in a peculiar kind of way. He's a, he's Snowden, a, sort of a, a human yeah. version of, uh, of, of cryptocurrency. Yes, uh, maybe maybe there's an exchange rate between the Snowden and the dollar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he certainly does raise money effectively. He raised that $5 million uh, for the Freedom of the Press Foundation, not for himself. Uh, but Snowden's emphasis on privacy, security, uh, and the desire of governments to control both uh, gave, I think, a significant boost to cryptocurrency and to uh, the mainstreaming of Bitcoin uh, as something that ordinary people would become interested in, and not just uh, privacy nerds and tech geeks. Do you think Snowden is an enthusiast of, um, of crypto in, in, in a philosophical sense? I think he is. His politics lean toward libertarianism. Uh, he has made. Lean, I think you, we, we might we might change that word. He is a libertarian. They don't just lean. Isn't that fair? Uh, that's fair. Uh, he's a libertarian. Uh, I I hate labels. I I trend, tend to uh, avoid yeah. them, but I think it's fair in this case that he uh, he's an enthusiastic user of cryptocurrency himself. Um, his life on the run from U.S. law has depended in part on that, uh, and as uh, we've alluded, he uh, he just uh, completed a very successful uh, non-fungible token auction in cryptocurrency using uh, Ethereum. 
But uh, a lot of people will be, of course, they, they, you're, you're very well known for your for your work on Snowden. But you also, back in 2008, uh, I think you won the the Pulitzer Prize for your your work on uh, exploring vi- at, the, at that point Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, your book Angler: The Cheney Vice Presidency um, was a national bestseller. A wonderful book on on probably the book on on Cheney. I'm curious as your take. I mean, obviously, Liz Cheney is not uh, her father. But I'm curious as your take on the seeming disintegration of the Republican Party and Cheney's role in it. Um, is the old Republican Party of Dick Cheney, is that dead? I, I, I think... Uh, strong indications are that it that it is. I used to say that Liz Cheney was the conservative in the family. Uh, she was the one who was uh, truly uh, the bedrock uh, principled Republican. And uh, I'll just be honest and say that lots of the principles she stood for were not. You know, I was I was not in sympathy with. But she but she's a true believer, like her father, uh, in what were the core principles of the Re- Republican Party and. Uh, some people say there's a civil war in the Republican Party now, and I'd say there's not. There's there's been a rout. Uh, there's been a victor, and uh, and the party's entirely in the hands of Trump now, and this sort of cult of personality around him, and there are literally no principles uh, that can stand up to that. Uh, whatever Trump changes his mind about something or makes a declaration, they fall in behind him uh, because uh, the leaders of the party believe that. Uh, Trump's enthusiastic supporter base is uh, something they can't do without, uh, and they'll do anything to hang on to it. But is there a narrative uh, dotted line, at least, between your book about Cheney and your book about Snowden? Are they connected in any way about, again, I'm trying to put words into your mouth, the decline, perhaps, of American power, the reshaping of the world economy or world political order? There is one uh, uh, anecdotal and quite direct link between the two, which is that uh, when uh, Lord Poitras got to uh, got to Hong Kong and and uh, started photographing Snowden, there was a copy of Angler on his uh, reading table. <laughs> uh, the uh, the book on Cheney had two chapters on secret surveillance. A uh, program called Stellar Wind, uh, under which uh, the U.S. government was obtaining uh, phone records and internet content, uh, and I knew I knew roughly what this secret program was. I knew a lot about the legal debate over the program, but the details and the content uh, were mysterious to me. It was a black box in the Cheney book, and it was the Snowden disclosures that made clear what was happening. Uh, what those programs actually were. Uh, so in that sense, there's a considerable continuity um, in in my own work between the books. I, I don't know whether uh, I have any grand global analysis for you on, on, on that. Do you think if we had access to uh, Snowden's reading table in Moscow that we would find Dark Mirror? Did you get any response from him on the book? I got a private response, and I think I'll leave it private. He's he's free to say what he likes. Bad? Did he did he give you three or four stars? <laughs> I I think he's always uh, respected my work and uh, sees me as as 
distinct from the Snowden advocates. He, he knew I would not be entirely on his side uh, or writing a hagiography. He didn't expect that from me. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I, I didn't. I, 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 I show you respect, but because I'm not going to ask you any questions about uh, the rest of your team, the Greenwalds, etc., because they seem to have disintegrated. Where you've gone from strength to strength, the book Dark Mirror, uh, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State is out in paperback. It's a must read if you didn't read it before. I know, Bart, you're talking to me from an undisclosed location in New York City, um, clearly uh, looking well and happy. Uh, even in COVID times, uh, we hopefully we're getting out of this now. I'm actually going to be in New York next month, uh, next uh, weekend. Uh, in addition to your book, what else should be read? What else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, there's a recent book by Nicole Perlroth of the New York Times called "This Is uh, How They Tell Me the World Ends." Uh, that is a fantastic. Uh, narrative of cyber war and what it means. It's a very secretive uh, behind the scenes uh, uh, world. It, it's, a, it's a world that's hard to penetrate and she's done so. Yeah, and uh, we have uh, at LitHub, we've, we've had Nicole on our show uh, and uh, so uh, that's a thrill. Uh, as always, Bart, we can't keep on meeting like this. Um, Love to have you back on the show. Uh, certainly, maybe this time next year, we can get you back to talk not just about Edward Snowden, but about the Cheney phenomenon, the fragmentation of the Republican Party, truth, digital, and everything else. Keep well, Bart. Always an honor. Thank you so much. Been my pleasure. Thank you.